chapter 9, verse 1 through to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we'll turn over to chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 16. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Felicia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, 
With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Uh, let me pray for us before we uh, look further at God's word together. Heavenly Father, as we continue to trace the trajectory of your salvation story throughout the Bible, uh, encourage our hearts, uh, deepen our sense of amazement and privilege we have as people who are trusting in uh, your King, your eternal reigning King. And may this also fire our hearts to share this great news with others as well, we pray. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's been a few weeks since we were last uh, in our overview journey throughout the Bible. Uh, when we last met, uh, things were rather dark. Uh, we had got to 587 BC, and by this point, uh, everything seems lost. Uh, for Israel, you could say it's been a journey uh, from rags to riches and then back to rags. Uh, remember, initially they were in rags. They were in Egypt. Uh, and God came to rescue them. And he did so out of honoring uh, the promises he'd made to Abraham. And so he rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, he had given them his law and his land. And yet when they entered the land, they rejected his law. And they spurned his hand. And consequently, God withdrew his hand and they lost the land. They had it all. But now they have nothing at all. Unlike the covenants made with Abraham, the covenant made through Moses was conditional. It had conditions. It promised blessing for obedience, but also curses for disobedience. And yet the people had persistently been faithless and rebellious. They had allied themselves with foreign people and false gods. And as a result, the people had incurred the curses of the covenants, not the blessings. We've seen, haven't we, in 722 BC, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to Assyria. Uh, Assyria invaded and deported them. And as was the Assyrian policy at the time, uh, they were intermixed with other people groups and would never again be reconstituted as a nation. Uh, the remaining two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah have limped on for another 200 years, but sadly they too had turned away from God. And so in due course, uh, their turn came. In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem finally fell to the besieging forces of the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the city was razed, uh, the temple destroyed, and the people taken into exile. What hope is now left? Well, integral to the demise of both kingdoms had been a failure of leadership. Under the good kingship of David, and to a degree Solomon, uh, the nation had flourished under God's blessing. Uh, we had seen that a good king helped the people to live in covenant faithfulness. But an almost unending succession of bad kings led to the corruption of the nation, to the corruption of the worship and the society, and the rot was from the top. And yet, 
God had promised to David a king from his family who would reign forever. However, there is now no Davidic king on the throne. Only a small proportion of the nation have survived the Babylonian onslaught. And that small remnant is now languishing in exile in a foreign land. What hope is there? Is this the end of the road? It seems that the covenant through Moses has now run its course, albeit negatively. It has delivered the curses for disobedience. But what about uh, the promised blessings made to Abraham? Uh, There were no conditions attached to those. What's happened to those promises? They promised that once again God's people would live in God's special place under God's good rule. And what about the covenant with David? Uh, That was also unconditional. Where does this promise of a glorious eternal king from David's family line fit in? And it's against such a dark, hopeless backdrop that the message of the prophet Isaiah burns brightly. Uh, The prophet Isaiah brings the message of hope. He promises God's restoration beyond God's judgment. And the prophecies of Isaiah actually date from 740 BC to 690 BC. The exile of the northern kingdom of Israel occurs a third of the way through this period. And yet Isaiah foresees not only the demise of Israel, but also Judah as well. And he speaks a message of hope beyond this judgment. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at three aspects of Isaiah's message of hope. Uh, Firstly, the promise. Secondly, the goal of the promise. And thirdly, the means of delivering on the promise. In other words, how the promise will be achieved. So firstly, uh, the promise. And what we're going to see is God is promising nothing less than a second exodus. Remember the first exodus when Israel was taken out of Egypt. God is promising nothing less than a second exodus. Exodus, a great deliverance event. As I already said, at the heart of Isaiah's message was the promise of restoration beyond God's judgment. Uh, when the Assyrian invasion occurred, uh, they swept in from the north. And as we see on this map, uh, the tribes of Zebulun uh, and Naphtali were the first to cop it. There they are at the top. Uh, But Isaiah views the wave of Assyrian destruction like an engulfing blanket of inky inky darkness. Yet in some way that is not yet clear, God offers hope of light that will subsequently banish this darkness of God's judgment. And it will be the people of Galilee in the north who will be the first to see it. Isaiah 9 verse 1. Uh, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then in chapter 11, this theme of hope beyond the judgment is developed using a different motif. It is no longer light in the darkness, but rescue from exile. Uh, God promises to bring his scattered people home. 
He will gather the diaspora from both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnants that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of of the earth. We're told that God is going to reach out his hand a second time. When was the first time that God reached out his hand to free his people? Uh, when have he liberated them from Egypt? And in verses 15 to 16, it becomes even clearer that what is envisaged is nothing less than a second exodus, like that from Egypt an act of great deliverance from bondage for a journey to a land of promise. Chapter 11, verse 15. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over it in sandals. Can you think of the last time in the Bible when the people crossed the water without getting their feet wet? It was, of course, when God parted the Red Sea and delivered his people from the pursuing Egyptian army. Look also then at verse 16 of chapter 11. There will be a highway for the remnants of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. A highway facilitates travel to a destination. A highway provides direction. A highway smooths out the obstacles. And God is going to establish a highway to bring his people home. What God is doing, in effect, is resetting the clock God sends his people into exile in order to start all over again. As in Egypt, they again languish in captivity. They are powerless to escape. And as in Egypt, God will again rescue them with a mighty hand. It will all be of God's doing, and none of it will be of their doing. But to what will the exiles return? Uh, Is it merely a return to the land of Canaan? Uh, What is pictured is actually far more than merely the repossession of a piece of scrubby real estate in the Middle East. What is envisaged is a quality of life that far outshines the best of what we can expect in this world. What we actually see is something startling and brilliant. It is actually the promise of a renewed creation. We're told that the conquered, decimated nation will experience a great reversal of fortunes. Sadness will be replaced with joy. Depletion by enlarged numbers. Chapter 9, verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. And what we see next is this. Life for those who have returned on the highway will be incredible. It will be free from all oppression. If we think about it, uh, Israel has been no stranger to oppression. Uh, Firstly, they were oppressed by the Egyptians, uh, then by the Philistines, then by the Assyrians, and now by the Babylonians. And yet God now promises a day when all such oppressive yokes will be cast off forever. Chapter 9, verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. And not only that, God promises actually an end to all war. Uh, For people still reeling from the trauma of war, uh, this is not an incidental promise. And notice that this is not just a temporary lull in hostilities. We're told that all military equipment is burnt. Uh, There is no future need for it. This is the promise of an enduring peace. Chapter 9, verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle... And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In chapter 11, the nature of the peace takes on a different dimension. Uh, There will even be a peace between animals that instinctively eat each other or rely on each other for food. Chapter 11, verse 6. The wool will live with the lamb. Uh, The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you see, God is promising far more than a return to the land of Canaan. It's actually a return to the land of Eden. It's a complete reversal of the fall. And if we allow ourselves a peek ahead to the penultimate chapter of Isaiah, we see that this is indeed the case. God is promising a complete overhaul of the creation. Isaiah 65, verse 17. It says this, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will be remembered, uh, will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. At verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So there it is. The promise of the great reversal. The promise of a restored and renewed 
creation. But thirdly and finally, how will God achieve this? And it's now that that covenant with David, the covenant which promised an eternal king, moves center stage. Because what we see is this. The rescue and the peace is brought about by an eternal Davidic king. A prince of peace whose reign will never end. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see the startling breaking news? The king will actually be God himself. He will be the mighty God. And significantly, this king will be from David's line. Chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his governance and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And also look at chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, uh, the root of Jesse, that is David's father, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. So now we are starting to get answers to our questions. How will Israel ever find a king who will be great enough and holy enough to enable Israel to inherit God's promised blessings? And the answer is, it will be from God himself. But could God, the vast creator of the universe, actually shrink himself down to take on human flesh? Surely not. Chapter 11 goes on to reveal that this king will be so filled with God's spirit that he will reign with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Uh, like Solomon, he will rule with the wisdom of God. And yet, unlike Solomon, his fear of the Lord will never grow cold. He will have an unending delight in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So, in conclusion, uh, what can we say? Well, the first thing we need to note is this. The thrust of everything that is being promised relates to life then in the new creation, not so much to life now. The Christian faith has a great impact, of course, on life now. Uh, we walk every day in restored relationship with our great God. 
We have God's indwelling spirit to strengthen us and to guide us. And yet we are on a journey. We are on a highway. Uh, We've come out of our slavery to sin, but we've not yet reached the promised land of the renewed creation. And that is the land to which we travel by faith. Some Christians want to claim for now what we will only have when we reach the final destination. Uh, God does not promise us health and healing in this life. The Christian is not assured of prosperity or peace if they follow God's will in this life. God has promised us all of these things, but not necessarily in this life. It means we can look forward to the renewed creation with an increased sense of anticipation. And it also guards against the error of those who say that God's will is for us to reap all these benefits now. God's promises have their center of gravity in the renewed creation, not in this one. The second thing we can conclude is this. That we see more clearly, uh, actually, what Jesus will achieve for us. In other words, renewed creation. Uh, there is, of course, no need for a spoiler alert. Uh, the child to be born king is, as you guessed, Jesus. He is the one who comes from the region of Galilee in the north, bringing light to those in darkness, as prophesied by Isaiah. We start to see now the wonder of what Jesus will achieve. We're not yet told how he will achieve it. That will come later in Isaiah. But we are given a glimpse of what he will achieve. A renewed creation. A world without war or discord. A world where peace reigns, not just in our hearts and minds, but even in the animal kingdom and Australian politics. Imagine that. The third thing we can conclude is this. All of this has to be a work of God, not a work of man. All of this has to be God's doing, not ours. We cannot possibly rebuild a new world order. Utopia is beyond our reach. It has to be all of God. We languish hopelessly and powerlessly in exile to sin. If we are to be rescued and restored, it will have to be done by God. Chapter 9 of Isaiah verse 4 again. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. If you remember, that's referring to what happened in Judges. Uh, Midian's defeat was at the hand of the judge Gideon. And if you recall, uh, God whittled Gideon's fighting force down to a mere 300 men against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. And yet God gave them a decisive victory. The chief lesson of Gideon and his victory over the Midianites was that God wins his battles for his people. It is all of God and none of us. As Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new chapter in this unfolding biblical storyline of hope beyond your judgment, 
of the promised king who will bring about a new world order, uh, one who will rule with perfect justice and righteousness and who will bring perfect peace forever. Thank you for this incredible development in your salvation plan. We know it's fulfilled in Jesus. Please, therefore, help our hearts to keep trusting him and to trust him with a deeper joy and a sense of anticipation as we look forward for his return and help us to live each day, indeed, making ourselves ready for the return of the King. Amen.